philosophize you about all that. Anyway, uh, but any given portion of Scripture has only one meaning. Our confession is very clear about that. That's just logically true. Any, any given portion of Scripture has only one meaning. Now, it may have a thousand different applications, but it only has one meaning. And all the interpretations given may be incorrect, but there is indeed a right answer. We just might not sometimes be entirely sure what that answer is. But nevertheless, we strive to understand all of Scripture while at the same time recognizing that some Scripture is easier to understand and others is more difficult. Uh, but we do praise God in this, that what must be understood and what must be believed in order to be saved and live a godly life is so plain in Scripture in some place or another that even a child can understand it. So we thank God for that. So we don't despair whenever we come to an exceptionally difficult portion of Scripture, even though we give it our all right, to try to understand it. We work as hard as we can. Uh, really, just a quick aside, uh, when we encounter a difficult text like the one this evening, uh, we should take a moment to recognize that we are finite creatures with finite minds who need the help of God to understand his word. And actually running across really difficult portions of scripture should humble us, right? Humble us in a, in a really strong way. Uh, but with all that said, I doubt very seriously that I will give you the final word on this text. Uh, J.C. Ryle, the brilliant Anglican preacher and theologian in his commentary in Mark's gospel, he got to these verses and said, I give no comment, <laughs> right? So I doubt that I'm going to give you the last word. Uh, but what I'm going to do this evening is simply tell you where I've landed on these verses, show you how I got there, and seek to apply what I can see in this text. Uh, but again, as humbly as I can say it, I, I want to be clear that I could be wrong in my interpretation. I don't think I am, uh, obviously, or I wouldn't be uh, preaching the interpretation I'm going to give you. Uh, if I think that I'm wrong and I preach it anyway, fire me. Um, but anyway, um, so, so then, uh, know this. If you find yourself disagreeing with me on the proper interpretation of this text, let me encourage you to use your God-given right to private interpretation, uh, to study the scriptures hard, use all the resources available to you, and humbly ask God to help you understand this text rightly. May God bless you and good luck. Um, but, but I want you also to know this. Like I said, full of caveats in this introduction. Um, even if I'm wrong about what this text in particular is teaching, I know that I can preach the major points of this sermon from other texts. That's a beautiful thing about the scriptures. Very rarely does the Bible just say something one time in one text. So even if I'm wrong on this text in particular, I know that I can preach this sermon from different passages. So at best, I'm right about what this text means, and again, I think I am. But at worst, I'm going to preach to you the right doctrine from the wrong verse, right? which happens sometimes. Um, and that's not an excuse to be lazy about interpreting the Bible, but I say that so that your minds can be at peace. And you can know that even if you disagree with me about this text, the overall content of this sermon is thoroughly biblical. Um, now, quick aside just for me here. Uh, in light of how difficult some portions of Scripture are, can I make a request of you guys? Pray for me. I'm not being funny. Like, sin sincerely, please, like, pray for me each week. I'm, I'm not a genius, as any of you who know me well know that for a fact. Uh, I'm not a genius. Most of my sermons are really hard fought and require a lot of effort out of me. Um, and I don't say that so you look at me and go, oh, Dave studies so much. It's not what I mean. I mean, I need divine help if I'm going to interpret and apply the scriptures rightly. So seriously, pray for me, please. Um, I would really appreciate that. Uh, but with all that said, uh, I, I now want to tell you my 
general, very simple summary of this text uh, before we jump in. Here's my summary. Everyone will be a sacrifice of some sort. Everyone will be a sacrifice of some sort. You will either be a sacrifice of divine judgment and justice, or you will be a sacrifice of praise to God. And the Christian is to live his or her life as a daily sacrifice of praise to our God. But nevertheless, everyone in some way will be a sacrifice. So with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 9, verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we come before you once again and ask for your blessing upon the ministry of your word. By the great power and great grace of your Holy Spirit, make the words of this weak preacher effectual to the salvation of your people. Grant us divine aid to understand your word this evening. Grant us aid to hide it deep in our hearts, reflect on its truthfulness and power, believe what it reveals, and walk in humble, glad obedience to what it commands. Show us kindness, we pray. Please help us. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so the text before us uh, speaks about fire and salt. Salt obviously gets the most attention, uh, but Jesus speaks of both. Uh, and in light of that, I think it would be a good idea to begin by looking back at the Old Testament to see what ideas Jesus would have most likely been conjuring up in the minds of his disciples when he mentions fire and salt. Um, so as always, part of our uh, method of interpretation as Reformed Christians, we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture for us. Uh, so we're going to begin by looking at many different texts uh, that I think will help us get a proper head on our shoulders to try and untangle this difficult passage, right? So first, how is fire used in the Old Testament? Uh, first and probably most commonly, what you would think of most of the time, fire is used as a picture of judgment and destruction from God. Uh, Isaiah 66, verse 16, For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord shall be many. So again, fire and judgment. Ezekiel 28, 18. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. So I brought fire out from your midst. It consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Right, so again, fire means judgment and destruction in some passages in the Bible. A second use for fire that we see in the Old Testament is... Uh, uh, it, fire is used to signify purification, right? Numbers chapter 31, verses 21 and 23a say, Then Eleazar the priest said to the men in the army who had gone to battle, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded Moses. Only the gold, the silver, the bronze, the iron, the tin, and the lead, everything that can stand the fire, you shall pass through the fire and it shall be cleaned. Right, so there we see fire being used for purification of sorts. 
Micah chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, a very famous passage about the Messiah, says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. So again, the idea of purifying gold, purifying silver, you let it sit in fire, and it burns the dross out of it, right? So purification in multiple senses, the Bible uses fire to talk about purification. Uh, a third thing, the scriptures also mention, mention fire, especially with regard to sacrifices. Uh, you guys are familiar with that, to show, to show that something is totally devoted to God. Now, I'll spare you the scripture proofs uh, here from the book of Leviticus, but I only do that because it's absolutely uncontested that fire is a huge part of Old Testament sacrifice, and I don't need to labor the point. Sacrifices under the Old Covenant were placed upon an altar and burned, either whole or in part, as a thing devoted to God. So again, fire is sacrificial language as well. So within the Old Testament, we see judgment and destruction, purification and sacrifice being used with reference to fire. And there are other ones, I'm sure, but those were three that I thought were relevant to this text. Um, but what about salt? How was salt used in the Old Testament? Well, first, we know that historically speaking, everybody used salt as a preservative for food. Right? There's actually a, a, an ancient document where someone said, um, what is it? the world cannot survive without salt. Right? And actually, the word salary, I think, means salt money in Latin. Right? It's like it's what soldiers would get as part of their pay. Right? So everyone's salt was a huge thing. Before there were refrigerators, there was salt. Right? And it was ideal for preservation. Salt would keep food from spoiling. Salt would keep corruption and putrefaction at bay. Right? So salt is used for preserving things. That's probably how we're used to hearing it used in the New Testament. You are the salt of the earth. Right? Preservation. Uh, a second thing salt was used for was for flavoring, obviously. Job chapter 6, verse 6, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Right, so Job knew how to cook, right? He wasn't worried about his blood pressure. Good on Job. He had much bigger problems at this point, right? So give him the salt. Um, what else? Third, salt was mentioned with regard to destruction and judgment, believe it or not. In Deuteronomy, this is kind of a lengthy one, Deuteronomy 29, verses 21 through 23, we see salt mentioned with judgment. The text reads, and the Lord will single him out. From all the tribes of Israel for calamity, in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in the book of the law. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land, will say, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout, an overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. So here we see salt being used with destruction languages, that the ground would be salted. If you salt the ground, nothing can grow there. The salt will kill everything. So it says nothing planted, nothing sown, nothing growing, no plant can rise up there. So salt's used with destructive language. We see that again in Zephaniah. There's a book you read all the time. Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 9a Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom, and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, a waste forever. Again, nothing can grow in a salt pit. It's a waste, a wasteland. 
or, and I didn't add this in my notes, but you guys already probably are thinking of this because both of those passages mention Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife. In judgment, God turned her into a pillar of salt. So salt's used in connection with destruction and judgment. Uh, fourth, salt was used in the Old Testament for purification and to symbolize purification as well. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4, God is speaking through Ezekiel, and he's talking about Israel with symbolic language uh, as, as being a baby that no one wanted to take care of. And he says, And as for your birth, on the day when you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. This seems weird to us, but for purification purposes and health purposes, they thought it was a good idea to rub newborns down with salt, right? So it was a purification kind of thing for health. Um, another thing about purification, this is more of a symbolic purification with salt. Second Kings chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees. But the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He, Elisha, said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw the salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. Now, the salt did not heal the water. God himself says, I healed the water. Right? So this wasn't some kind of chemical thing with the salt. This was a supernatural thing. And the salt there was meant to symbolize purifying the water. So again, salt is used as a symbol for purification as well as uh, health-style purification in the Old Testament. Uh, lastly, and fifthly and lastly, salt was used in sacrifices. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Or some translations say, moreover, with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Right, so again, every offering, not just the grain offering, but with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Uh, another one about that, Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 23 and 24. When you have finished purifying it, you shall offer a bull from the herd without blemish and a ram from the flock without blemish. You shall present them before the Lord, and the priests shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. So it wasn't just grain offerings. I was just trying to show that to you again. Even a whole burnt offering was supposed to be sprinkled with salt. With every sacrifice, there was to be salt. Without the salt, the sacrifice was not acceptable under the Old Covenant. Um, salt was actually even so important that it's mentioned as a provision for the temple in Ezra chapter 7, verse 22. Right, and I was reading a, a historical commentary, and they said that in the temple complex, there was a room called the salt room. <laughs> right, You had to have salt with all your sacrifices. And I went through all those texts. Maybe you're saying, like, wow, man, like you just read a bunch of scripture. Why? Like, why did you do that? I went through all those texts with you so you can see for yourself what kind of thoughts would come up for a Jew when they heard of salt and fire. Right, what, what, what kind of imagery would have come up in their minds most likely? And so those kinds of thoughts should be on our minds as well, I would argue, if we're going to understand what Jesus meant in his context. But I noticed something when I was studying those texts, and maybe you did too, maybe not. Um, there are three parallel uses of salt and fire, or the three corresponding uses. Th three times they line up 
right, side by side with each other. Judgment and destruction, fire and salt. Remember, I'll burn the place with brimstone and salt. So there's judgment and destruction. A second time that they line up together is for purification, passing things through the fire to make them pure, salt being used for purification as well. And a third thing was sacrifice. Especially there, fire for sacrifice. You need salts for sacrifice. And so these three uses that match up really inform some of my thoughts about our text in Mark. I'm just trying to show you here's how I got where I'm about to tell you what this text means in Mark. Right? But especially sacrifice. Especially sacrifice. Because in sacrifices, salt and fire meet one another every time. Every time there must be salt and fire. So they were to always be put together. Again, and Jesus puts them together in our text in Mark. So I'm going to be relying heavily upon the idea of sacrifice in my interpretation. But the thoughts of judgment and purification are also part of my interpretation as well. So I'm using all three of those parallels, but especially the idea of sacrifice. Now in light of this Old Testament context then about salt and fire, let's read our text one more time. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's begin by breaking down verse 49. For, emphasize on, emphasis on that, for everyone will be salted with fire. The word for here is incredibly important in this verse, and sadly, in my studies, many of the interpretations I've read absolutely do not deal with that word. But it's actually part of the Greek text. For is in the manuscripts, right? It's not like the, the English translators put it in there to make it more readable for us. No, gar is the word. For is actually in the text itself. So we have to deal with it, and why is it there? Now, for is a word of explanation, right? It's, it's explanatory. It introduces an explanation. So then, what Jesus says in verse 49 is directly connected to what came before it in verses 43 through 48. Right? Just real quick, I, don't, I feel like I need to say this real quick because I think my, I might be losing some of you. If I just got up here and gave you my interpretation on a hotly disputed text, that's not going to help you because then you're believing it just because I said it. <laughs> right? So I'm just throwing that out there. I'm doing all this work so that you can see how I got there so that you might be actually convinced and I'm not binding your conscience with some kind of false authority that you think that I have. The only authority I have is whether or not I'm right about what the Bible teaches. Right? So I'm just throwing that out there. I know this might seem tedious to some of you, but this is actually good. Right? So anyway, I'm not, I'm not scolding anyone when I say that. Like I just wanted to be clear about that. Um, so again, with this word for, what comes before it, what comes before for, uh, it, it's connecting it. So what Jesus is talking about in verses 43 through 48 has a direct connection to verse 49. And in the preceding verses, 43 through 48, Jesus has been warning us about the necessity of breaking with our sin and repenting metaphorically cutting off our hands, feet, and gouging out our eyes, lest we go to hell. So verse 49 is connected to that idea. Verse 49 gives us a further explanation or reason for why you want to cut off sin, right? Which again, that's the main point in verses 43 through 48. So why should we cut off sin? Well, obviously, so we don't go to hell. That's what Jesus says in, in those five verses. But now Jesus is giving us a further reason. For everyone shall be salted with fire. 
bottom line, the point I want you to see so far is you may disagree with how verse 49 is related to verses 43 through 48, but you cannot deny that it is linked to it. It's in the text. You've got to deal with it, right, with your interpretation. It's linked to it. We're going to come back to it. Secondly, in verse 49, Jesus says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone. Now, here's where things get difficult, if you didn't think it was already. Right? Here's where the battle is fought. Some people think that everyone refers to all those who are damned, mentioned in verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone, that is all of those who are in that fire that is unquenchable, will be salted with fire. For everyone will be salted with fire. All of the damned. And I thought that at first. That's what John Gill thought. He was a really smart Baptist. right? So that's, that's possible. Other people think that everyone refers to all disciples and that Jesus is switching gears a bit here. Right, that verse uh, 49, everyone is all disciples because that's who Jesus is talking to. Starting in verse 33 and following, Jesus is talking to disciples. So everyone, as in every one of you, every disciple of mine will be salted with fire. But I propose that we take the broadest meaning of Jesus' words here and say that everyone means everyone. Right, both the damned and the disciple. And I say that because when interpreting scripture... Although, for real, like the, 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 fa- the, the idea that like it's talking about the people in hell, that was the most appealing to me at first. But when interpreting Scripture, the safest way to interpret a text is to take its plain meaning unless another clearer passage of Scripture would force you to take a less plain or more nuanced meaning. And I know of no such text that would force me to do anything but take everyone here to mean everyone. Right? So I'm going to go on with the safest route that I know. Everyone means everyone. So with that said, I think what Jesus is saying so far is verses 43 through 48, you must break with your sin, you must repent of all known sin, or you will go to hell. And now in verse 49, he's saying, and you should take this into account as well when you're making your decision. Everyone will be salted in fire. Everyone will be salted with fire in one way or another. The damned in one way. The believing in another way. That is, everyone will be a sacrifice of some kind. Both the believer and the unbeliever. Both will, in one sense or another, pass through the flames. Every person is going to be a sacrifice of some kind. Again, it's just a matter of how. Everyone's going to go through the flame. It's just a matter of how. Do you want to pass through the fire of cutting off your sin? And being a sacrifice to God for his praise? Or do you want to be a sacrifice to divine justice and enter the flames of hell because you refused to repent? I think that that's the substance of what Jesus is saying here. Everyone will be salted with fire in one way or another. The unbeliever will be a sacrifice to divine justice. The unbeliever will be salted with fire, consumed in the flames of hell. Just like And this is uncomfortable, but just like some of the cities in the promised land in the Old Testament were to be devoted to destruction, right? That's actually sacrificial language. I don't know if you knew that or not. When a city was devoted to destruction or anything was devoted to destruction, it's sacrifice language. The cities where every man, woman, child, and animal were to be killed were as sacrifices of sorts to the justice of God against those wicked wicked places. Sacrifices to justice. 
In the same way, those who reject the gospel, those who live and die in their sins, those who enter eternity apart from Christ, will be an eternal sacrifice to the justice and wrath of God against sin. They will be, in a sense, devoted to destruction. The unbeliever will be salted with fire, and that is a very negative way of being salted with fire. It's a horrible thing. Again, as fire and salt were used for destruction, as they were used as emblems of the wrath of God, and as they were used as part of a sacrifice, so Jesus is using fire and salt to speak of the awful reality of hell for those who persist in their sin and refuse to repent and come to Christ. But remember, Jesus says that everyone will be salted with fire. So there's another sense we have to consider now. Everyone, the Christian, the believer, will be salted with fire. But we know that the believer won't go to hell. So this kind of salting with fire must mean something else. This image of salt and fire and sacrifice must mean something else with regard to the Christian. Remember, salt purifies. So does fire. It just depends on how you're using them. Right? Just how are you going to use them? And sacrifices were holy things committed to God with salt and fire. So I think that Jesus is saying that the Christian will be, of necessity, a pure sacrifice to God. Not a sacrifice of justice, but a continual, uh, rather a sacrifice of continual pure praise to God. The life of the Christian is to be a holy one, isn't it? It's to be a holy one. That's part of, of, of how this verse connects, by the way, with verses 43 through 48. In those verses, Jesus says to cut off your sin. What is that? Repent and pursue holiness. We are to be pure and holy sacrifices to God. And I want to clarify, not sacrifices for sin. That's Jesus. That's only Jesus who is the sacrifice for sin. None of us can atone for sin but rather sacrifices of praise is what we can be. That is, the, the life of the Christian has a certain motto. Whatever God wants, that's where I'm at. Whatever Christ commands, that's what I will be doing. Right? That's going to be my life. I'll give you a great example of this. I'm walking away from the notes. Get ready. Right? <laughs> I, I'll give you a good example of this. Uh, Farhad, who, who used to live with me, uh, some of you guys remember him. He was a Muslim who became a Christian. Praise God. <laughs> and Farhad was talking to me one day, and he asked me a question about whether or not something was a, what was a sin. So I took him to 1 Corinthians, and I showed him where the Apostle Paul addressed uh, this question that he had in, in, in mind. And at the end of it, I looked at, I looked at Farhad, and I said, Brother, what do you think? And he said, What do you mean, what do I think? Well, what is, well the book said that. Am I going to argue with God? God said No. That's a Christian. That's a sacrifice. I asked him, do you have any arguments? He said, am I going to argue with God? The book says what it says. He's a baby Christian when he said this. May God teach us all to have hearts like that. Whatever God commands, that's what I'll be doing. Wherever God might send me, that's where I'm going. The Christian is to have a life of offerings. A life of fruit of the Spirit being born and offered up to God through Christ as a pleasing aroma to Him. A life of holiness and purity and godliness. A life devoted to the glory of God, to the praise of His glorious grace shown toward us in giving us eternal life through Christ. The life of a Christian 
is a continual sacrifice of praise. And I don't just mean, and I know most of you probably already know this, but I need to say this. I don't just mean praise with our mouths as, like we give when we pray and sing and preach and confess our faith. I mean a living sacrifice, the way that we live. In everything that we do, our aim is to give glory to God. Let me give you a list of some things that went through my mind. In the way that we work for our employers, we are a sacrifice. Paul says to work as if working for the Lord. In the way that we work, we are a sacrifice. The way that we raise our children, the way that we shelter them from godlessness in our homes, the way that we raise our children and make the conscious effort to raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord is a sacrifice because that doesn't just happen. The way that we treat our spouse is to be a sacrifice, living in humility and graciousness, men leading and loving their wives, women submitting to their husbands, the way that we date if we're not married, not dwelling in fornication, having high biblical standards for our potential spouses, prayerfully seeking the will of God for our lives. That's sacrificial living. The way that we daily strive to rid ourselves of all known sin, repenting from the heart, earnestly desiring to be pure. The way we spend our free time, not wasting it on foolish things, but making the best use of our time. The way we give and show generosity in whatever way the Lord has blessed us. The way we show reverence to God by making the public worship of God the top priority of our week is one of the ways that we offer ourselves as a sacrifice to God. The way we show patience toward others. The way we forgive those who wrong us. The way we strive to live in peace with all around us. The way we speak the truth in love. The way we rebel against a culture of wickedness by shining light on it and proclaiming Christ all of our life. Everything that we do is to be a sacrifice to God. We are salted with fire every day. A continual sacrifice, a daily offering of ourselves to God through Christ. Now this language of sacrifice, right, salt and fire, makes us think of another portion of scripture that I'm sure has went through some of your minds already. Romans 12.1 I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or if you prefer the King James, which is your reasonable service. I like that one better. Which is your reasonable service. We are to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, says the apostle. But did you catch his reasoning? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. That is, in light of the mercies of God shown to you, you give yourself as a sacrifice. Because you are one of God's people, you have become a continual sacrifice. You don't do this to earn anything from God, but rather in light of what God has already done for you in Christ. In light of Christ giving himself as a sacrifice for your sin, you give yourself to God. In light of Christ dying for you, you put your own will to death and give yourself to God. In light of Christ setting you free from sin and Satan's power, you freely lay yourself down on the altar of praise. Like Psalm 110 says, your people will offer, you, offer themselves freely on the day of your power. 
In light of the abundant kindness and mercy of God given to you through Christ, present yourself as a living sacrifice. How could we not? I mean that. How could we not? Surely this is our reasonable service. Surely this is appropriate and fitting. And that's why our Lord can say in our text in Mark that everyone, every Christian will be salted with fire. This is what naturally happens when someone belongs to Christ through faith. We become a sacrifice of praise. Brothers and sisters, the life of the Christian is lived on the altar. May God help us to see that. Our lives are to be lived on the altar. Each day, we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, are salted and set ablaze so that we might burn brightly and purely for Christ. Every day. Every day we renew our commitments to Christ. Every day we renew our faith in Him. Every day we renew our repentance. Every every day we renew our obedience. We are to every day consider ourselves a sacrifice to God because He has been so merciful and kind by providing us a Savior in Christ. In response to that, it is only reasonable and fitting that we offer our whole selves to Him. We say every day, Whatever he commands me, I will do. Wherever he sends me, I will go. Whatever he tells me to abstain from, I will abhor. Whatever he tells me to say, I will say. Whatever he tells me to believe, I will believe. And just as a sacrifice is consumed by the flames, so we are consumed by Christ. And there is to never be one part of our lives that go untouched by the sacred flame. Our whole lives. And maybe you're sitting there, because I can see it on some of your faces, maybe. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm judging you. I don't know. Right? But maybe you're sitting there thinking, like I did on Thursday when I was writing this outline, this is really basic, Dave. Right? This is Discipleship 101. We know this stuff. You've said this stuff many times in the past. But do we live it, brothers and sisters? Do we live it? You know, there was once a woman, I think, who complained to... George Whitfield and said, um, or no, it was a young man, and said to him, he's a great preacher in the 1700s, and he said, Mr. Whitfield, I've, I've driven around to different towns, and I've heard you preach four times, and I've heard you preach the same sermon every time. And Whitfield says, are you obeying the text perfectly? No. Then I'll preach it again. <laughs> Whitfield was funny. Do we live this? I know we know it, but do we live this? Obviously, we don't live it perfectly. That's not going to happen this side of glory. But do we live this even remotely consistently? Or or to put it another way, right? Maybe this is more helpful, right? Because we'll all admit, well, I'm not as consistent as I should be. Let me put it this way. Do you think of yourself like this? Do you think of yourself this way? Do you wake up in the morning and remind yourself, I belong to God and I am a living sacrifice for his praise? Do you wake up in the morning and say to yourself, for everyone will be salted with fire? Do you remind yourself throughout the day when tempted to sin, when tempted to stray, or even having strayed, do you remind yourself, I am not my own. I belong to God. My life is to be an offering to Him. Do you pray daily for divine assistance to offer yourself purely? Do you pray each day that the Holy Spirit would conform you to the image of Christ and salt you with fire? 
Do you consider yourself a living sacrifice is what I'm saying. Though most of us, probably all of us who profess faith in Christ understand these things intellectually, we need to hear this over and over again because we're dumb and we're forgetful. And we need to hear it over and over so that it might sink deeply into our hearts so that we can view ourselves rightly. Did you know one of the most frequent commands in the whole Bible is remember? Because we forget. We forget. And I want to make a note here. This is not meant to be some kind of drive-by guilting, right? I've preached sermons like that before, right? Where you just kind of shoot out into the crowd and make, try to make everyone feel bad a little bit. That's not what this is. Right? This is a gracious wake-up call and reminder for us. We so often become enamored with this world and the things that we've got going on and the busyness of it all, and we forget. Or we become so entranced by temptation or so dulled by the pleasures of the world that we forget. And so this text reminds us of what we are, Christian. This text reminds us. Christ knows that we are so prone to wander. We are so prone to forget who we are. We are so prone to forget what Jesus purchased us to become. We're so prone to forget why we exist. But here our Lord graciously reminds us that we are sacrifices. Living sacrifices of the glory, praise, and grace of our God who has saved us. But now let's consider the rest of our text. Verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Now this reference to salt in verse 50 sounds very much like what Jesus says in Matthew 5.13, right? About Christians being the salt of the earth. And many translations will start to take that route. Um, but that doesn't make any sense to me in light of what Jesus says in verse 49 for him to start talking about you being partially someone who helps preserve the world. I don't, I don't believe that that makes much sense here. I think given the context of Jesus' words here in Mark, again the context, verses 43 and following, given the context of these words in Mark, I think Jesus is using the same image and even the same phrase, but to make a different point. Right, so I think he's using the same kind of imagery about salt that he uses elsewhere to make a different point here in Mark. Jesus says salt is good. Right, so Jesus is now explicitly speaking of salt as a good thing. I don't mean to insult your intelligence. I just got to make that clear. Salt is a good thing. Well, this tells us then that Jesus is referring to the Christians being salted with fire, not the unbeliever. After all, I don't think Jesus would say, going to hell is good. You know, like I don't think that that's what Jesus means here. Right? So I think he's talking about the Christians being salted is good. Salt is good. Remember, salt goes with a sacrifice, probably as a symbol of purification and consecration to God. Since in Leviticus 2.13, it was called the salt of the covenant. Again, uh, a consecration to God. So I think what Jesus is saying here is that this kind of devotion, this kind of purification and consecration to God, this sacrificial worship living is good. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. Right? That kind of sacrifice is good, and surely that's true. This kind of salty living, this pure living for God is good. This is the highest good that human beings can attain. Right? To live holy for God is the whole reason we were created in the first place. Right? Like the Westminster Catechism says, Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? To, to, to know God and to glorify him forever. I think I said that right. It's not in my notes. 
to glorify God, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Thank you. I'm, I'm not a Presbyterian. We use the Baptist catechism up in here. Um, who is the first and chiefest being? God is the first and chiefest being. That's how ours starts. Anyway. <laughs> but no, the highest good that human beings can attain is to glorify God. To live holy for God is actually why we were created in the first place. Consider this. God created Adam and placed him in the Garden of Eden. Maybe you never thought about this, but the garden was a kind of temple because that's where God dwelled with man. The garden was a temple, and man worshipped God and had fellowship with him and glorified him continually. That's what we were made for, right? To, to live as a sacrifice of praise to God. Furthermore, this is why our Lord saved us. He didn't just come to live and die and be raised so that we could avoid hell, though that is true. But Christ came so that our fellowship with and praise of God that had been ruined by sin would be restored. Christ came in order to save and purify a people and set them apart for the pure worship of God. And so here on earth, we live as daily sacrifices to God for his glory. Worshiping him in everything that we do. And that's what we're going to continue to do for all eternity in the new heaven and new earth when our Lord returns. So most definitely, salt is good. It's the highest good. This is what we were made for, being devoted to God in all of our, in all of our lives, in all things. So salt is good. But then Jesus goes on to give what sounds like a warning. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Jesus speaks of salt becoming unsalty, and maybe you're thinking, how does that work? Right? Well, this doesn't happen to us because pure salt chemically cannot lose its savor. It's not possible. But back then, salt was not perfectly pure. Um, they didn't have the technology to make a completely pure salt back then. Um, so the saltiness could actually leach out of the salt because it came into contact with other minerals. So you could have salt that was salty for a while, but eventually lost its salty properties. And when that happened, the taste was gone, the preservative qualities were gone, the usefulness of the salt was gone. The stuff would become worthless if the salt gets leached out of it. But from what I understand, the salt could still look like salt on the outside and be deceptive. It seemed to be salt, but in actuality, it, it wasn't salty anymore, and it was now worthless. So in light of that, I think that this is a warning from Jesus. Salt losing its saltiness is a Christian falling away from their profession. Falling away from being devoted to God and committing apostasy. Not considering themselves a sacrifice to God, but instead refusing to cut off their sin. Clinging to their sin, which Jesus has just warned us about in verses 43 through 48. Such a person is now worthless because false faith is worthless. That person who professed the faith has lost their saltiness. And such a person is only going to be tossed into the garbage heap. Where was that? Gehenna. Hell. Salt that loses its saltiness is worthless. Now a quick note here. Considering all of what scripture has to say about apostates. Obviously an apostate Christian can come back should God grant them repentance. And we have some of them here in our church, praise God. But the prodigal son can always come home. I want to be clear about that. But Jesus is making a point about a professing disciple being saltless. That's Jesus' point here. He's driving it home. Such a person is no disciple at all. Such salt is not really salt, and it's worthless. 
If a professing Christian has no saltiness, no devotion to God, no holiness, if there is no purity, what good are they? They give no glory to God. Again, such a person is only fit for the garbage heap. Such a person is only fit for hell. So this is a warning. Brothers and sisters, I'll, I'll say it plainly. We must persevere. We must not grow lax in our service to God, lest we fall away from our profession and prove that we were never genuinely converted to begin with. So brothers and sisters, prove your election by heeding the warnings of our Lord. Because it is by the warnings that God graciously preserves his people. And now we come to the application and command from Jesus concerning this teaching. He says, have salt in yourselves. That is, have that devotion. Have that purity. Live that sacrificial life of praise to God. Devote yourself to God in all your ways. Or to put it another way, have this principle of saltiness in your life. Right? Strive for it. Recognize, Christian, that you are to be salted with fire. Have salt in yourselves. And notice that Jesus is speaking to every disciple individually here. He says, in yourselves, each one of us are to strive to have this principle of total devotion. Each one of us are to renew ourselves to God daily. And notice this, since Jesus commands this, have salt. This tells us that this is to be something that we have to put forth effort to obey. It's the truth. It won't just happen. Surely God, in his mercy and by his spirit, will aid us. There are other texts that promise us God's help for these things. We cannot do any spiritual good apart from the work of God in us first. But God is not going to just zap this in us. And that's why Jesus gives it as a commandment. Have salt in yourselves. We have to remind ourselves of this daily. Daily cut off our sin. Daily pursue holiness. Each and every day we are to offer ourselves again as a total sacrifice. So again, this will take conscious effort on our behalf as God works mightily in us. Having been made holy by the blood of Christ and being progressively sanctified by the work of the Spirit, we now lay our lives down each day on the altar. And lastly, our Lord says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is one of the results of having salt in yourself. You will live at peace with your fellow disciples. When every Christian devotes himself or herself to God, there will be an effect within the household of faith. What do I mean? Godliness will be promoted. Holiness will become the norm. Peace will reign, pride will be crushed, service will abound, forgiveness will come quickly, repentance will flow like water, faithfulness will be the fruit. And again, how could it not? If all in the church are aiming to give themselves wholly unto God, how could there not be, in large measure, peace and goodness within the church? Maybe not out there, but among us. Right? After all, such people devoted for God or devoted to God, aren't living for themselves anymore. But rather, they are living each day before the face of God, recognizing that He sees all and remembering that they desire to please Him. And in the context of this passage, this is exactly what Jesus' disciples needed to hear that day. This is how it all sums up, by the way. In verses 33 and 34, the twelve had been arguing about what? Who is the greatest? So our Lord tells them that if they will 
render themselves, each one, as a sacrifice to God, then they won't quarrel and be so immature towards one another anymore. That's just one application and result of, of, of the community of faith rendering obedience to God, but it's one that they needed to hear. And it's one that it would serve us well to remember. It would serve us well to remember it as well. So on this point, take this with you. Our individually being devoted to Christ is to have an impact on the church as a whole. It's to have a positive influence. As John Calvin said, you must do your endeavor not only to be salted within, but likewise to salt others. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That is, as we devote ourselves to God, we encourage others to do so in many ways. Right? This, is, this is part of Christ's plan for his church. That all, walking in true devotion to God, would encourage all to continue in the same path. That's powerful. And may God help us to, to be living sacrifices ourselves who set one another aflame for his glory. We're going to need it in the days ahead. That we would encourage one another to live godly and in the fear of the Lord. And devote ourselves upon an altar to him every day. By walking in it ourselves, we encourage the brethren to, to do likewise. But as we conclude our time in the Word now, uh, I want to end with two thoughts. First, remember that this devotion, this kind of living as a sacrifice of praise uh, that I think Jesus is speaking of here, happens only in the context of faith. You could take what I've said this evening and it be a legalistic nightmare. Right? Just do, 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 do. But know this. This only happens in the context of faith. It only happens through faith in Christ. Apart from faith in Christ, the devotion isn't real. It's just an external attempt to white-knuckle yourself into reform on the outside while still remaining filthy within. And such attempts will not last. I promise. I tried them before I became a Christian. They won't last. They won't be genuine, and they won't last. Truly giving yourself over to God only happens by faith. It only happens by believing. Believing that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is God over all, and he can command you in everything in your life. It only happens through faith, believing that Jesus has died for your sins to save you and grant you eternal life. Believing that Jesus died and was raised to set you free from the power of your sin as well as its penalty. Believing that Jesus died so that you now can be new and free. This kind of devotion to Christ only happens when you believe those things and begin to naturally love him for them. That's how this obedience, this is how this devotion happens. When you begin to love Christ because you see what he's done. You will not devote yourself to God through Christ until you see that he is worthy of your devotion and your affection. You just won't. You won't give your life over to Christ in the way that he talks about in this text if you don't think he's worth it. But once you see the great mercy of God given to you in Christ, you won't be able to help yourself from seeing that he's worthy of your whole life. This only happens through faith. Remember what Paul said in Romans 12.1. It is by the mercies of God that we become living sacrifices. It is by, or rather, it's in light of what God has done through Christ that we give ourselves over to God. So think on those things and all of the mercy God has shown you and your heart will soon burn and your life will be set ablaze. I promise. Think on the mercies of God shown you in Christ.
It's by faith that we offer ourselves to God. Second, and I'm ending on a somber note and I'm doing it on purpose because it's the theme of our text. Everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will burn one way or another. And the question is, which way will you burn? Which way will you burn? As a living sacrifice to the glory of God or as a sacrifice to divine justice? You have to choose. For everyone will be salted with fire. And may God grant us grace to give ourselves to him in all things. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this very difficult text. Because even though it's difficult, Lord, we do see some great reminders and, and truths of what it is to be a disciple. And God, I pray that you would help us to have salt in ourselves as our Lord commands us. Help us to offer ourselves purely and humbly and devotedly to our Lord. Help us to say, here's my heart, promptly and sincerely. Do with me what you will. Put that in our hearts, Lord, and help us to do it by faith in Christ, believing that he's worthy. We pray this in his name. Amen. Before we sing, I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 13, where the Lord shows us what sacrifices pleasing to God are. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, or who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go, out, go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Would you please stand? We're going to sing, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. I thought this would be fitting because, as, uh, as Dave mentioned, um, being a sacrifice is often very difficult. It's not easy. I remember growing up in my charismatic Pentecostal background, going to conferences, and it was be a sacrifice, and you leave excited. Um, quickly defined, that's very difficult. It's difficult to love those who persecute you. It's difficult to love those who hate you. Uh, it's difficult to honor God when you don't feel like honoring God. Um, and it is often the time.